my gracious, that is good. That is good. Thank you, Greg, and those that serve with him. Thank you, so many of you that are faithful to help take up the offering. And thank you, Mark, for hitting record on the uh, voice recorder. I appreciate you doing that. I am so grateful that you are here this morning. I hope when you came in, you got a bulletin. And I know that when you pull that bulletin out, now obviously there's going to be some notes if you want to reference those in the back of those as we study God's Word together this morning. But also when you get to the inside of the bulletin, this is from information. They're talking about next Sunday we're going to have a men's breakfast that we do every, every month. We have the Christmas parade that we're going to participate in that, that Brandon is doing for us. We've got the, uh, some other stuff, the adult Christmas party coming up another week from now. There's also a, a quote in there that I want to draw your attention to. Miss Donna always does the bulletin for us. and I didn't talk to her ahead of time. She didn't know anything about it. Greg and I didn't talk about the music, but it all just kind of comes in together. And there... On the left side panel, you see the quote that she put in for the quote for this week. And it's by Billy Sunday, a pastor from a, a couple of generations ago. But he, he made this statement. He says, one reason sin flourishes is that it is treated like a cream puff instead of a rattlesnake. And I don't know if you ever read those or if you ever ponder on those or if you ever think about those very much. But it ties right into where that I want us to go for the next few Sundays. Obviously, we've saying we are... In the Advent season, the Advent season is just simply the time that the church focuses on the incarnation of Christ, God sending his son, Jesus Christ, to be born of a baby. And so we spend this entire month focusing on the Advent, Christ coming to us. What I want to do over the next four Sundays that we have that we're thinking about this Advent is I, I want to just kind of put a question, and you see there, at the top of the notes, and Greg already led us answering the question, if you will, but we're going to come at it from a different angle. And the question is, is why do we need a Savior? The tendency can be as we come to this season of the year, and it can be all fixated on the materialism, the present. It can be fixated on the gatherings, whether it's in a, in a, in a job setting or with family or friends. We start to think about the, the decorations. We start to think about the holiday festivities some of you individuals like because now we have the, the uh, different drinks at Starbucks and the different things that come. The ladies get to do this. The guys get to do this. And, and these things come back and forth. And sometimes we can get so fixated on the Christmas time that we miss the Christ in Christmas. And sometimes it can be so busy that we, even on an individual level, we forget and we miss the opportunity for us to think about why it is that we need a Savior. That's what this whole Christmas season is about, is about Christ coming to us. But I think it's important for us to consider from time to time, why is it that we need a Savior? Well, the Sunday school answer, if you think about it, is sin. We need a Savior because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's what the Bible tells us. So every one of us in this room needs to be saved from our sin. You know, in this time, in this day and age where everything becomes so commercialized and everything becomes consumerism and everything becomes just another Sunday school answer and everything becomes just kind of normal, traditional, rote, and we just get in a rhythm and a habit, it can be easy for us to miss just how much our sin cost our Savior. So this morning, I want you to join me in Hosea chapter 8. 
Hosea chapter 8, it's one of the minor prophets there in your Old Testament. If you open up to uh, the middle of your Bible, you're going to be in the area of Psalm. And then if you go to the right, you'll go to Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Solomon, Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. If you feel free to use your table of contents if you would like. But we're going to be in the minor prophet of Hosea this morning. Because what we're going to do, we're not going to just walk through Hosea over the next four Sundays. But but I want to spend the next four Sundays talking about our need for a Savior. And why it is that we need a Savior. Now if we start with the, the Sunday school answer and the right answer that we need a Savior because of our sin. Then I want to take some time to think about. What this sin does and why exactly do we need to be saved from our sin? As you find your way there in Hosea 8, I want to just kind of set the stage, set the context for where we're coming into the story. A lot of times people know about the story of Hosea because of how God called Hosea. God called Hosea to be a prophet, to be a person that comes and speaks on behalf of God, to speak a message that God had given him to the people. But in this way, it was kind of a unique way, God comes to Hosea and says, okay, Hosea, you are going to be my spokesperson, my mouthpiece to the people, but the way that I want you to deliver the message is going to be pretty unique. He tells Hosea, first of all, I want you to go and find a wife that's a, a prostitute. Go and find a wife that's engaged in the act of prostitution, the the trade of prostitution. Go get a wife that previously was that, and I want you to marry her, and you're going to start a family with her. So Hosea goes and does that. And then in this marriage setting, the Lord gives them three children. The first one, he gives them a son, or sorry, a daughter, sorry, a son, and called his name Jezreel. Then God blessed the union again, gave him a daughter, and this time they named the daughter No Mercy. Then they had a third son, and he called him Not My People. And all through this, God is using Hosea and the life of Hosea to say, you're going to be an example to the people of what I am going to do with the people. I mean, so that's kind of strange. So you mean you got to name one son Jezreel, you got to name one daughter no mercy, and you got to name one son, not my people. That's kind of weird. Well, that's the example that he is giving to the people. Well, then you skip over to chapter 3, and it's the one that most people are, real, are recognizing or are familiar with, is that later on in the story, Hosea's wife then leaves. Leaves him. It's implied that he goes and takes up residence and a lifestyle with a different man. God comes back to Hosea again and says, go back to your wife who's now living in an adulterous relationship with another man and go back and bring her back to you. And so in Hosea chapter 3, he goes back and pays the man for Gomer, his wife. And all of this is meant to represent God's treatment towards the people and the people's treatment towards God. All of it is to be a physical, outward demonstration of what the nation of Israel has done to God and God's heart and God's attitude towards the people. And then starting in chapter 4 and working all the way through to chapter 14, Hosea opens his mouth and he gives a discourse inspired by God and tells the people, this is God's message to you. And right in the middle of Hosea chapter 8, he talks about the effect of their sin and what this sin has done between the people and between their God. And in effect, what we're going to see this morning is Hosea is reminding them that this sin separates them from God. So we asked the question at the beginning of this Advent year, why do we need a Savior? We need a Savior because we have sinned. But it's not just that simple. It's not just that 
sterile, if you will. We need a Savior because our sin has separated us from God. I want you to see this with me. Four ways that sin separates us from God. Now, I I think that not only was this true in Hosea's time and in the Old Testament picture that he is speaking to, that God is speaking to the people, but brothers and sisters, friends, I also fear that in the day and age we're living in, 2021, the effects of sin are still just as dangerous today. And if we start trying to marginalize or trying to negotiate or trying to compromise with sin, as Billy Sunday said, we treat it like a cream puff instead of a rattlesnake. So I want you to notice with me, we're going to walk through this passage, probably pretty much the entire chapter. We're just going to walk through and and listen to what God is speaking through the mouth of Hosea to the people. He's trying to warn them, "Be be on guard of the effect that your sin has in separating yourself from me. So how does this sin bring about separation? Well, if you start there in verse 1 of Hosea chapter 8, it says, set the trumpet to your lips, one like a vulture is over the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. So God is speaking through Hosea. He's speaking to the people, and he said, be on guard. The enemy is coming. The enemy is at the gate. And then in verse 2, <clears throat> to me they cry. This is God speaking. To me they cry, quote the people, my God, we, Israel, you know, remember us, your chosen people, we know you. But then God comes back in verse 3. Israel has spurned the good, and the enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel. A craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces." Now, some of you may say, well, we need a little bit of an explanation here, Spence. What is exactly is going on? Well, I submit to you this morning, and I, and I hope you'll see with me, that the first thing that Hosea is pointing to is that there is a separation in the worship. There is a separation when it comes to sin in our lives. One of the first things that it does is it separates our worship. Now, how is he talking about there? Well, right there in verse 2, it says, Israel is speaking to God and saying, God, hey, you know us. And God comes back and says, oh, I know you, and I know what you've been up to. You put kings there in verse 4. They put kings up that weren't from God. They put leaders up that weren't from God. And then in verse 4, it says they made idols. And then you get down to verse 5, and there's even a stranger reference when he talks about the calves of Samaria. What is that in a reference to? Well, hold your finger here in Hosea. And if you would, turn back to 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings chapter 12, because he gives us a reference to what he is referring to. If you know very much about your Old Testament story, after David, um, you had Saul, which was the first king of Israel. Then you had David, was the second king of Israel. Then you had Solomon that came along. And God had told through Solomon, Solomon, after you, I am going to take the kingdom. I am going to divide the kingdom. So Solomon had a son. His son was named Rehoboam. After the death of Solomon, Rehoboam ascends to the throne. But there is a whole another faction known as the ten northern tribes, and they go and they get a guy named Jeroboam, and they bring Jeroboam to Rehoboam, and they're like, listen, your dad put a lot of taxes on us, made us do a lot of work, did a lot of things we didn't want to do. You know what? We would really be on your team. We would all be on team Rehoboam if you would just kind of slack off a little bit. Just give in a little bit, not be so heavy-handed, not be so, not be so hard to get along with. Just, just chill out for a minute. 
And as the Bible tells us in 1 Kings 11, Rehoboam then goes and he finds some other people around him and says, what do you think I ought to do? He got the wrong counsel at the wrong time. Jeroboam comes back and he looks at him and goes, you think my dad was tough? You just hide and watch this. And what happens in 1 Kings chapter 12 is that Jeroboam then takes the 10 northern tribes and they divide. They split from the two southern tribes and now you have a division. You have a kingdom divided. That's why when you get to the rest of 1 Kings, 2 Kings, the Chronicles, and you get there and you have a hard time because it says this king's in charge and this king's in charge and you're trying to keep up which king's in charge at which time because you have two different kingdoms, two different king lineages, and you can get quite confusing. So what happens is, is as Jeroboam takes the people away from the southern tribes, he realizes that if all the good Israelites continue to go back to Jerusalem to offer their sacrifices, then their heart is going to be turned to Rehoboam, and then everybody's going to eventually come to Rehoboam, and they're going to kill Jeroboam. So what Jeroboam does there in verse 28 of 1 Kings chapter 12, listen to what he says. So the king, and this is Jeroboam, He took counsel and made two calves of gold, and he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold, your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. So he sets these two calves up. It reminds you back to Exodus 32 when the people are coming out of that Egyptian bondage and they get down there and Moses and Moses is up on the mountain receiving the, the Ten Commandments and receiving the law from God. And Aaron is down there and the, and the people gather up and they're like, we need to have a God, make us a God. So they put all their, their jewelry and according to Aaron, out from the fire, pop this calf. Well, it was a representation, Bible scholars will tell us, of the Egyptian God of Baal or Baal, sometimes people pronounce it Baal. Baal. But it was a pagan god that they put up as a physical representation of what they were going to worship. So you fast forward to 1 Kings 12, and that's what Jeroboam is doing. He's putting these calves, these two calves up, saying, hey, this is where you're going to worship, and this is what you are going to worship. So then you fast forward back here, to, back here to Hosea chapter 8. So as God is coming and he's confronting the people, he is telling them that their sin has separated from them from God and it has separated them in the area of worship. Well, what's the problem with idolatry, Spence? In fact, he says that there in verse 4. With silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. Have you ever thought, what is such a big deal with idolatry? The big deal with idolatry is idolatry is disordered worship. God has created you. God has purposed you. God desires. God deserves our worship. And when we put these idols in place of God, and an idol is anything, something, or someone that is more important than God, when we put these things in front of God, we disorder the Worship that God calls us to. And that's what idolatry is. It is disordered worship. But even more than that, God is pointing out to them that idolatry is a choice. Idolatry is a choice. What do you mean, Spence, idolatry is a choice? Well, look there in verse 6. It says, these calves, these calves, they're from Israel. Somebody made it. It is not God that put it there. These are man-made idols that man put, men put in their lives to worship. And he says, you are not commanded, you are not required. And the majority of times, it's not accidental. How many times do we find ourselves guilty of making it, buying it, going to it, sitting in it, going to sit in front of it, driving it around? 
parenting it, whatever those idols are in our lives, how many times do we find ourselves putting these idols in our lives and then we wonder why they separate our, our worship before God? See, even though idolatry is a choice, worship is not. Other places in Scripture, you'll be reminded that we were created to worship. And if we're not going to worship God, we will worship something else. And in a vacuum of worshiping God, we will then worship whatever else is in front of us. So we ask ourselves the question, well, how do I know if I'm being an idolizer? How do I know if I'm worshiping something other than God? Let me just give you a, a quick question. What determines your schedule? We ask ourselves the question, well, who, who, do I have my worship out of order? Am I guilty of disordered worship? Now, you can ask yourself a lot of different ways. We can, we, we can put some uh, probing questions a lot of different ways. But let me, just, let me just ask you, what determines your schedule? You know, sometimes people will get a piece of paper and it'll be a schedule. And they'll say, oh, I'm going to miss church here, 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 and here. What determines your schedule? I realize that we have a lot of different life circumstances in the room. And I'm not trying to say that I want to be legalistic and I want to make something about something that shouldn't be made of. But brothers and sisters, too many times in the church today, we have people coming in and church is not a priority. God did not create their schedule. This is out of the margin and the leftover of your time. Now, I'm glad you're here and I want you to be here. But more importantly, I want you to know that when you come here, you are here to worship God and not to be seen and not to mark a box and not to just feel better about yourself and assuage your conscience. You are here because you are here to worship God. So he he comes there in Hosea chapter 8 and he says, be careful. This sin, this sin that comes into our lives and your life and my life, it causes a separation. And one of the first ways that it separates it, it separates our worship to God. How many times have you, because I've been there, I can testify. How many times have you said, I don't want to go to church because I know when I go to church, I feel guilty. And I don't want to feel guilty, so I just don't go to church. I know the rest of you are like, well, we've never done that before. Well, I have, okay? So pray for me because I have been there before. I don't want to have a conversation with that person because that person's going to ask me. I don't want to go to see that person because that person's going to ask me. I don't want to be reminded of my sin, and it breaks and it separates my worship before God. And Hosea says, speaking on behalf of God, that's what sin does to us. <clears throat> but there's a second There's a second problem that comes with sin, and that is that it separates our dependency upon God. It separates our dependency upon God. If you continue there in the passage in Hosea chapter 8, and you go on to verse 7, he he talks about their dependency and the people's dependency and what their dependency was founded upon. He starts there in verse 7, and he says, For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. And then he goes on in verse 7, he says, The standing grain has no heads. It shall yield no flower. Explanation, these people have thought that they would have sustenance. They thought they would have security. They thought they would have protection in their grains, in their fields, in their provision in their possessions, in their things. They thought, guess what? I have got enough materialism around me. I am secure. And God is coming and he is telling them, do not miss it. You can plant it, but I'm the one that produces the increase. I'm the one that produces the fruit. You have all of this grain, but you, you got all these standing plants, but you've got no grain. If you think that you can do life apart from me, you've misunderstood who you are. 
And so he's coming into this scene and he is saying your dependency, your dependency should be on God. But unfortunately, we depend on ourselves more than we depend upon God. We depend upon our intelligence. We depend upon what we think. We depend upon how we feel. We depend upon our emotions and not depend upon God. And so he says, this standing grain has no heads. It's not going to yield any flour. And even if it did, all these other people, he talks about the strangers. You might interject the government there. All of the strangers, they're just going to come and devour it anyway. So all these things that you're working for, you work hours and hours and hours, and you make all this money, and someone else is just going to come in and take it. I was on the drilling rig one year, and you worked seven days on, seven days off. So I worked my seven days on, and the guy that was on the days that I was supposed to be off, he comes to me, and he says, I've got a lot of farming to do. Would you work my week for me? And I think, oh, my gracious, double the money. Great, I'll do it. And so I end up working 28 days straight. My week, his week, my week, his week. The paycheck comes, and I'm expecting a fat check. So I'm thinking, Dad, put the time in. What Dad didn't realize is that Uncle Sam ratcheted up the taxes the more hours you put in. So I worked one week at, let's say, X amount of pay. The second week, I received half of the pay because the rest of it went to my friendly local government. You ever felt like that? You work, you work, you work, you slave, you slave, you slave. You just put it in. You put the time and effort, and it is all going somewhere. God says, does it ever feel like that in your personal life, that you're working, and you're working, and you're working, and you're not getting anywhere until all of a sudden you turn it over to God? All of a sudden you trust God in? All of a sudden you let God be God, and you depend upon God, and the next thing you know, you're doing more with less than you did before. And he says, it's your dependency, your dependency on where you're at. But that sin separates your dependency. Not only do you depend on yourself more than others, but then you listen to others before God. You're going around saying, what do you think I should do? And what do you think I should do? And we're asking other people. And he comes in there in verse 8, and he says, Israel, it's swallowed up. They are, they are among the nations a useless vessel. He is saying, it's not a matter of your reputation. You go around and you're saying, well, we're God's people and we're God's chosen people and we have the favor of God upon our lives and look who we are because we are somebody. He says, you're only something because of who God is. In First Baptist Church, I'm going to tell you, it's not a matter of our name. It's not a matter of our location. It's not a matter of our history. The only thing that separates us from being the disbanded group of misfits tomorrow is the blessing of God. And he says, your dependency, your dependency is not upon the speaker, not upon Greg, not upon the aesthetics, not upon the people. Your dependency should be upon God. But we listen to others more than God. And not just that. Oh, my gracious. Look down there at verse 9. He says, for they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Now, let me give you a little explanation. Ephraim was one of the two sons of Joseph. He had Manasseh and he had Ephraim. So you have the half-tribe of Manasseh, you have the half-tribe of Ephraim. But it was used back that time synonymously when you're talking about the ten northern tribes, you were talking about they would sometimes call them the ten northern tribes or they would sometimes just rope them all in and call them all Ephraim. So he is saying that you have these people that even though the enemy is coming, even though the Assyrians are coming, instead of trusting in God to defend them and protect them and lead them, they decide they're going to go get their own people. They're going to go get their own army. They're going to go hire their own defenders. And he said, you are relying more on man than you are on God. That's why he says there in verse 10, though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up 
And the kings and the princes will soon writhe under or bribe because of the tribute. He says, you're going to go out and you're going to find all these other places for your deliverance and for your help and for your hope. You're going to go out and find all these other things that you think will take care of you. But the reality is, is God is in control of all of it. And our dependency, our dependency becomes fractured. When that sin separates us from God, not only does it separate our worship, but it separates our dependency upon God. And we see this all over the place in the world today. We're living in a time and a season where everything is about self-help, therapeutic, humanistic, emotionally driven, self-idolizing. Everything says you have the answer within you. Most of your psychiatric and psychological theories are based upon you fixing yourself. That is why you will go into that psychiatrist or that therapeutic room and they will say, well, how does that make you feel? What does it matter how you feel? What, is, what does that matter? Well, what do you think that tells you about your childhood? So you have some traumatic image from 15 years ago. What do you think that tells you about your setting? I'm not trying to say that your 15-year traumatic is irrelevant. I'm just trying to tell you that you do not have the answer apart from Christ. You do not have the answer inside of yourselves. We do not have the answer inside of ourselves. It's not a matter of being dependent upon a self-help book or being dependent upon a pharmaceutical, or being dependent upon a person, it is that dependency upon God. So Hosea comes in, and God is speaking through Hosea and saying, listen, listen, you need to understand that the sin, the sin is why you need a savior, but the sin has an effect. It separates your worship. It separates your dependency. And then it gets worse. It separates your obedience. It separates your obedience. So notice there in verse 11, he continues on. <coughs> He says, because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. And you may read that and you go like, well, what, what is he trying to get there? Isn't he just saying the same thing over and over and over? Well, yes, but then also, no. Notice how he is putting there. He is saying, because they have put idols in front of themselves, they find themselves guilty of worshiping idols. Okay? What is he trying to say? Explanation may be spent. He is reminding them that this idolizing, this pagan worship, this separation, it's not accidental. They're putting the idols there. And then they're trying to complain and whine when the idols do what the idols do. And yet, how many times do we put idols in our lives and then we seem surprised when the idols do what the idols do? Sometimes you'll hear jokes about preachers handling snakes. Sometimes you've seen those TV shows or heard their stories. Somewhere in the Appalachian Mountains, it always has to start with somebody that is not considered to be the most intelligent specimen in the world, but they're out there and they're handling these snakes and... I think you see an article written about the snake bit the person, and they were just surprised. The person was surprised that the snake bit them. And I think if you're the kind of person that's surprised that the snake bit you, then I don't have any help for you. Because <laughs> if you tell me, Spence, pick up the poisonous snake and say, well, the spirit will hold you. And I'm not trying to make light of their religious conviction. I'm just telling you. That nature teaches us if you're going to handle something that is poisonous and harmful, and if that thing then harms you, guess what? God told you it was a possibility to begin with. 
So why are we surprised? So you get people today and they will make commitments. They will commit themselves to responsibilities in the society around them. And then they wonder why they have no time for God. Or they go out and they take on more debt than they can afford. So then they have to go out and work more than they originally do. And then they find themselves in this slave cycle to the lender. And they wonder why it is that they have no time to do the things they want to do. They have no margin to God because they have dedicated, committed, put their lives out there trying to please a lot of other things that aren't from God. And Hosea is in this passage on behalf of God saying, remember, obedience is intentional. It's not one of those things, by default, you're going to be obedient to God. By default, you're going to be pleasing to yourself. So he says this obedience, remember, obedience is intentional. That's why he comes back in verse 12. And he says, were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. He said, it's not the fact that you don't know what God wants you to do. It's not the fact that you don't know what God expects of you. It's not the fact that God hasn't spoken to you. It's not the fact that you're wandering around saying, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with my life. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with my mornings. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with the resources God has blessed me with. <clears throat> it's not the fact that God hasn't told you. It's the fact that you haven't read what God has told you. You haven't read what God said to do. You are trying to put together an Ikea bookshelf without the instructions. It doesn't work. And he says, understand that this is a matter of obedience. Not only is obedience intentional, but obedience is revealed. This obedience, God tells you what he wants you to do. God shows you what he wants you to do. God says, as a Christian, this is what I expect of you to do. God says, as a church, this is what I expect the church to do. God says, as a parent, this is what I expect the parents to do. God says, as children, this is what I expect the children to do. He tells us what to do, and then we wonder why we're not obedient. It's because we're not listening to God, because we're too busy listening to man. And he says, this separates our obedience. The next thing you know, you don't want to follow after God because you're too busy following after the people that make you happy. <clears throat> the people that make you feel good even in your sin. The people that don't challenge you. The people that don't convict you. The people that don't question you. The people that don't hold you accountable. He says we've got to be careful because it separates in our obedience. And you get down to this idea in verse 13. Notice it says, as for my sacrificial offerings... So God says, oh, I, I see you people. You people come. Oh, you do you come. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it. But the Lord does not accept them. <clears throat> He's making a difference between giving and accepting. When was the last time you came in on a church on a Sunday morning and you asked yourself the question, does God accept my worship today? Does God accept my worship today? When I come in, it's not a matter that God needs me. It's not a matter that God should be happy just that I'm here. It's not a matter that I'm here to check a box or I'm here to fulfill a commitment or I'm here to be seen. Does God accept my worship today? Well, Spence, God has to. God doesn't have to accept anything. He's God. Well, but why, how would God not accept my worship? It, it is all throughout the Bible that God says, listen, when you come to me with sin and rebellion in your heart, you can dance the dance and you can walk the, you can talk the talk, but unless you're walking the walk, I don't have to accept it. 
You can come in and you can give me all the sacrifices. You can come in there and you can put all the money in that plate that you want to. And you can do all that and say, look at me, look at me. God doesn't have to accept a dime of it. God doesn't have to accept a minute of it. And then when do we come and we say, does God accept my worship? Well, how do I know if God exists that to me my worship? Well, ask him. <clears throat> that may mean I have to get close to him. That may mean I have to ask him, am I living in obedience? Am I dependent upon you? Am I truly coming and worshiping you? See, obedience, as God frames it there in verse 13, obedience is on God's terms, not on my terms, not on your terms. Obedience is on God's terms. So that means that God defines what obedience looks like. Like, we're in that season right now, Ezra 3 going on, 4, and he'll sit there and he has a chore. And his chore is he has to pick up all the toys in his bedroom and in his closet. And so he comes in there, comes time for nighttime, and I look at him and I said, you pick up your bedroom. He gives me the look. I know what that look means. That look means, well, you know, I'm, I didn't get everything under the bed, and there's probably some stuff over here, but you know, mostly. And he'll look at me and go, yes, sir. Did you really pick it up? Yes, sir. Are you sure? Let me go check. And then he runs off, and he always finds something that he missed. And that's how we do with our Christian life, isn't it? Isn't that how we do? We come to God and say, here I am, God. And God says, are you really here? Well, you know what? I'm actually thinking about something else. And you know what? I'm only here because I'm getting ready for something else. And you know what? I'm, I'm here, but I'm not here because I'm, my mind's elsewhere because my mind is committed out. My devotions are committed out. Or you show up, and you're so tired that you've got nothing to give to God because you spent the other six days giving it all to the world. And then you show up and you're just dragging and you're just present. But you're not worshiping God. And he says, you come and you think because you're here, that means that you are worshiping God. And God is the one that sets the terms of your obedience. And brothers and sisters, the goal of this moment is not to be acceptable by man's standards. The goal of this moment is to be acceptable by God's standards. So he says the sin, the sin separates us. It separates our worship, it separates our dependency, separates our obedience, and then this last one, and we're going to be done. Verse 14. For Israel has forgotten his maker. He may say, what in the world is he trying to get through there, Spence? What I think he's trying to tell us this morning is that this sin, it separates us in the area of our identity. It separates us in our identity. He says, for Israel has forgotten it's maker. He is saying, you forgot who you are. You forgot who you belong to. You forgot who I am and who you are in relationship to me. So many times when we sin and we're in that sin, we lose sight of who we are. We have forgotten our identity. We need to remember, we have been created by a creator. If you have a created, that means you have a creator. And when you have a created and a creator, that denotes authority. And may I tell you, as lovingly as possible, you're not the authority. You're not in charge. <clears throat> you are not in control of whatever it is that you think you got control over. You are not in charge. Being a created and having a creator means that we are all under authority. Every single one of us are the, uh, under the authority of someone. We have authority on this earth, and we also have authority before God. One of my responsibilities as a father is to teach these little knuckleheaded boys to submit to me and their mother. 
well, that seems a little bit outdated, and that seems a little bit legalistic, and that seems a little bit chauvinistic. No, 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 no. I am teaching them to submit to their parents because they are going to have to submit to God. And if they don't submit to their parents, how do I think that I'm preparing them to submit to God? And you say, well, I don't want to be that heavy-handed, and I don't think I'm going to be that, 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 strong, that strong president in my child's life. And I think my child should have all kinds of options, and they should choose for themselves. I'm not trying to tell you how to parent. I'm just trying to tell you we see the proof in the pudding when we have so many parents coming up today that they don't teach their children to submit to their parents, and that the children don't know how to submit to God, and we see this divide and this disconnect take off. So it's not about me trying to raise children to be robots that serve every will and whim and pleasure of me. It's me saying I have a responsibility to raise my children to submit to God. And if they won't submit to me, they won't submit to God. And now I have a responsibility because I'm going to stand before God one day and I'm going to give an account for what I did with what God entrusted with me. My stewardship will be on display before God. And every single one of us are the, under the authority of God, and we forget our identity. The sin makes us think that we're better than we are. The sin makes us think that we're more confident than we are. The sin makes us think that we're smarter than we are. The sin makes us think that we can get by with something without God seeing us. That sin separates us from God. Well, that's the bad news. So let me give you some good news. Romans 5.8. God shows his love for us and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. It's the beauty of the Old Testament is it points to our need for a Savior. It points to our lack of being able to save ourselves. And the cycle you see throughout the people of the Old Testament is they tried to save themselves, they failed, God delivered them. They tried to save themselves, they failed, God delivered them. And this ebb and this flow of obedience and faithfulness and disobedience and rebellion back and forth and back and forth. So then you come into the, the beginning pages of the New Testament and because God loved us so much, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, during this whole Advent season, he sent him to be born in a manger. Why did he have to be born in a manger? Why did he have to be born as a baby? Because in order to be that sacrifice once and for all, he had to live a sinless human life. So he couldn't send him as a 30-year-old. He couldn't send him as a 14-year-old. He couldn't send him as an 8-year-old. He had to send him at the very beginning so that from very day one, he could live that sinless life so he could be that sacrifice for me and for you. We would pay those sins for the rest of our lives. And so as we think about the sin that separates us in the Hosea picture, we also think about the sin that drives us to a savior. So we come and we realize that Jesus, Jesus coming was the way that we may be right before God. So we ask ourselves, okay, so my sin separates me, but how do I get back in right relationship with God? We see there at the bottom of your notes, just this question, how do we return to God? That's the question that so many times we have to answer. How is it that I reconcile my relationship and my fellowship to God when that sin has separated me? It's not difficult. The first thing is to confess of our sin. To confess our sin. Any married man in the room knows it goes a long ways in resolving conflict with your missus if you just say, I'm a knucklehead and I'm sorry. If you admit you're wrong, it goes a long ways. First thing is to confess your sin. That's what the Bible tells us. If you will confess 
with your mouth and believe in your heart. It gives us this idea that you're not going to have forgiveness of sins. You're not going to have the remission of sins without recognizing that you are a sinner. Secondly, we repent of our rebellion. Not just say, I've sinned, I've done wrong, I have sinned against God, guilty, I'm going to keep on doing it. You repent, you turn, you leave that sinful lifestyle, you leave that sinful attitude, you leave that idolatry, and you turn to God. You repent of your rebellion, and that's when we come to Christ and we say, all right, Jesus, I give my life to you, you are the Lord of my life. What we're saying is that you are now in charge. I don't give you a room, I don't give you a day, I don't give you a couple hours, I give you my entire life. Here I am. It's more than just a Sunday routine. Now, sometimes people <clears throat> saw a study here a couple weeks ago that said that 25 years ago, the normal attendance for an active church member was five times a month. So for a person, what church is considered to be an active church member, you attend a church's you attend a church five times a month. Now, the most recent study that came out from George Barna and the Barna Group was 1.3 times a month. It's considered active church membership. Can you imagine what happens if you showed up to your ball team 1.3 times a month? That's what it would be like if you showed up for your employment 1.3 times a month. Imagine it would be like in your marriage if you showed up <laughs> as a spouse 1.3 times a month. And yet, people will come 1.3 times a month and say, here I am. I'm an active church member. I'm a faithful church member. I'm right before God. Here I am. I get all of the rights and the privileges. Here I am. I should be treated as such. We confess our sin. We repent of our rebellion and we receive God's goodness. We receive God's goodness. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. The Christmas trees, the Advent season, the songs of our Savior coming to us. It wasn't like we took a vote and now he has to be here. It wasn't like we pulled our money together and now he has to show up. It's not like we are sitting there and he's like, well, you know, I already pinned some on the calendar. I already told him I'd be there. I got to be there. No, all of this came because of God's love for us. I needed a savior. I could not earn or merit or deserve or be worthy of a savior, but God loved me because he created me and he has a special plan and a purpose for my life because who God is, God says, I'm going to send you my son. And Jesus, don't get this mistaken, Jesus knew what God was sending him to do and Jesus at the right hand of the Father said, you want me to go and be born to an impoverished carpenter family? Yes. You want me to be born in a feed trough? Yes. <clears throat> you want me to grow up in this environment and this setting and I'm supposed to do all this without sinning? Yes. And then I'm going to spend 33 years doing everything you tell me to do, not being appreciated, not having my big house and my big fancy job. Think about it. He was Jesus. He knew everything. He could have been in the greatest Wall Street investor ever. But he gave all of that up, and God said, yes, and I'm going to do all this, and I'm going to live all this obedience, so I come to 33 years. And I didn't just crucify him. 
They beat him. And they mocked him. They made fun of him. And they ridiculed him. And they did every despicable thing you could imagine to get him to cave and to sin. I mean, there's a lot of different meanings and emphasis, emphasis behind the beatings, but some of it was Satan was saying he'll give in just one more strike. He'll give in just one more hit. And yet Jesus is sitting there looking at God the Father and saying, you want me to go to this earth and do all of this thing knowing everything that I'm going to have to go through because you want me to do it? Why? Because those people are that important to you? And God says, yes. And he says, I'll do it. And that's what this Christmas season is about. Not because we deserve it, not because we earn it. Because that is how good God is. So as we come to this Advent season, as we think about this time of Christmas, we think about our need for a Savior. May we, as God's people, rejoice. May we rejoice in not just the fact that Christ has come to us, but may we rejoice in the fact that our Savior has come for our eternity. May we rejoice in the message that we have to share. So I'm not saying don't give gifts. I'm not saying don't get together with friends and family. I'm not saying don't put up... Christmas lights. I'm not saying don't drink the special drinks and do the special things. I'm just saying let's not lose sight as a church over this coming month of what we are excited about. That we're excited because God has sent Christ to us. And once the people that were separated from our sin or separated by our sin from a creator now has the opportunity to be reconciled to God. Just bow your heads with me.